Hey everyone, I'm Nate Vinio, and this is Something to Gnaw On, a short podcast for those with a short attention span or just short on time, designed to give you something to mentally and spiritually chew on throughout your day, a Bible study in bite-sized form, if you will. This episode is Open War is Upon You. A quick programming note here. This episode is taken from something I wrote in 2017. And it's as true today as it was then, as any scripture is for that matter. This was more of a journal-type piece from a moment in time that God was teaching me some pretty tough lessons. I remember that my intent in writing it was to make sure that I didn't lose sight of the tough lessons learned. There's no sense in repeating our mistakes. So the idea was that I could reread these from time to time and keep on the straight and narrow. Remember the Tin Man in L. Frank Baum's The Wizard of Oz? I'm the guy that watched the movie but never read the book, let alone the other books that are part of the series. Yeah, I had no idea there was a backstory to the Yellow Brick Road. And while I'm at it, let me just say that it struck me odd that a guy would use an initial for his first name. So, as you may have figured out by now, I had to go digging. As it turns out, the L stands for Lyman. If my name was Lyman, I think I'd change it too. Not to mention the secondary problem, though. If he uses Lyman and then the middle initial, then his name would read Lyman F-bomb. And I should think that would be problematic, especially if he were to ever be a junior high substitute teacher. Oh, the things that parents don't see when they name their kids. Okay, enough of the rabbit trail. Back to the important elements of this episode. Anyhow, the story of the Tin Man was not fully represented in the movie. In the prequel, Nick Chopper, a.k.a. the Tin Woodman, the Woodsman, or the Tin Man, had been in love with Nimmy Amy, a slave of the Wicked Witch. Nick had set off for the forest to build a home for them to live. The Wicked Witch hated the love that he had for the maiden. So she enchanted his axe, causing it to slip and severely damage his arm. The witch arrives on the scene and has a prosthetic tin arm made for the young logger, free of charge. Nick loves the strength the tin has given him, and he works harder and longer. Quick side note, it amazes me how a non-Christian writer has the wherewithal to see, whether he realized it or not, that what's going on here is the devil's modus operandi, his method of operation. Create pain, then offer the solution, which usually leads to captivity, addiction, or some worse kind of pain. So back to the script. And it soon happens again, and again, and again, until all four limbs have been replaced with tin. But in an odd way, the tin man felt stronger and grateful. Finally, the witch caused an accident that damaged his torso. When she arrived to repair it, he is given a strong but hollow torso. Regrettably, the tin man loses his heart in the process. The witch gave him some oil to keep his joints lubricated and remain productive and functional and strong. But his love for Nimi left with his heart. The witch had won. It's an interesting metaphor. Mr. Chopper is targeted. 
he compromises and gives up a little of himself, one piece at a time, until finally it cost him his heart. Without his heart, no love. Without his love, no life. Regret rules his existence. You cannot have intimacy without exposure. Exposure of your heart. It's a direct relationship. The more exposure, more intimacy. Less exposure, less intimacy. The risk in relationship is that this exposure will create vulnerabilities. And this vulnerability is the opportunity that Satan waits to exploit, just like the Wicked Witch of the West. The Wicked Witch takes advantage of Nick's vulnerability as he lovingly tries to provide a home for himself and Nimi. His motives are pure, but she successfully destroys the relationship, and sadly, Nimi ends up marrying someone else. In the early years of our marriage, I had this idea that we were dealing with, quote, normal marriage issues. Arguments were normal. Fights, non-physical at least, were normal. The anger was normal as long as you didn't sin or go to bed angry. This must be the, quote, for worse part of the marriage vow, I thought. But it's not God's plan. Ephesians 5 tells us that this marriage relationship is illustrative of God's love for us and the church. And that being the case, God's love is either really messed up or we are seriously missing something. Becoming one in marriage is not supposed to be an MMA title fight. It shouldn't push us to the point of sin. Can I use a scene from another book that I didn't read, but I've watched the movie several times? I love the scene in Lord of the Rings when King Theoden is set free from Saruman's spell. It's a visceral picture of evil and the freedom thereof. His physical transformation is immediate. He steps back into his position as king and promptly cowers in the face of impending war. I would not risk open war. But he's surrounded by greatness at the time, and Aragon gently prods him. Open war is upon you, whether you risk it or not. With the jab of a fellow king to keep him accountable, King Theoden takes action and defends his people. Open war is upon all of us, married or not. Get that foundational fact nailed down. We hear God loves you. We hear Jesus loves you. We see these bumper stickers. We see it on buildings. We see it on church signs. We see it in the John 3.16 sign at football games when someone's kicking a field goal. While it's true, and we deeply know in our hearts that it is, there's another part of the picture that we shy away from. The other part of the picture is that Satan hates you. He hates God. He hates Jesus. He hates you. And he especially hates marriage. He doesn't care whether you miss heaven by an inch or a mile. He loves it when your spouse cries. He loves to see you walk out in anger. Your pain is his enjoyment. Picture him and a demon or two betting over which one of you will sin first in an argument. Or which one of you will sin when the conflict arises between other, other brothers and other sisters? Which one of you will be hurt to the point of tears? Or pained enough to go out and do something stupid? Or which one of you will cause another person to do something of that nature? Or trade a wounded arm for a tin one starting a downward spiral? 
This is Satan's way of spitting in the face of God. He played his hand in heaven. He risked it all, and he lost. He had what is ours, but will never have again. He writhes in hatred toward God, and he takes it out on us. This episode isn't about glorifying Satan in any way. It's about knowing your enemy. And our spouses are not our enemies. The body of Christ is not our enemy. This isn't preparation for the devil-made-me-do-it defense. He doesn't make us do anything, but he does have influence, significant influence, and I fear it's more than most would acknowledge. Having different opinions, different familial histories, different birth orders, different communication styles, different love languages, those are all going to be givens. For it to devolve into an argument or a fight is heavily influenced. It could be a great opportunity to discuss something. It could be a great opportunity to lay your life down like Christ did for the church. It could be a great opportunity to display the fruit of the Spirit. Or you could dig your heels in and hold out till you get what you want via the usual suspects like manipulation, coercion, debate, belittling, pure stubbornness, or a good old-fashioned third-grade temper tantrum. I'll bet you know what God would want you to do. But there's a deeper question. The question is as follows. Is Satan getting a foothold in the marriage, in the relationship, or in our church? What I began to realize was that Satan had an amazingly intense interest in our marriage, and that ought to scare anyone. Nothing in creation exemplifies God's love for us like marriage. And by understanding that, then letting the brutality of sin take hold, we create a distorted view of God's love for us and that of the church. Here's the cold reality. Our fights, conflicts, disagreements, or discussions were sin. They didn't have to be, but we carried them to that end when the flesh ruled the relationship, not the spirit. Consider Galatians 5.19, quote, The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. End quote. Sixteen acts are mentioned specifically, not to mention the etc. phrase at the end and the like, which makes the list who knows how much longer. A few are obviously nastier than the others, but living like any one of them will get you a first-class ticket down ACDC's Highway to Hell. While I'm on a scripture-quoting rant, take a look at what James says about these relational conflicts in the message. Quote, Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your way, and you fight for it deep inside yourself. You lust for what you don't have and are willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours and will risk violence to get your hands on it. 
That's James 4, 1 and 2. So not only is the devil bringing the attack, but often we are excellent accomplices. Speaking for myself, I wrestled with hatred dressed up like the pursuit of justice. Leaving in a fit of rage was better than staying in a fit of rage. Selfish ambition was cloaked in dreams and goals and passions and God's will and wanting better for my life and my family. Counseling with friends was basically creating factions. Come to find out our marriage vows didn't include an immunity waiver for these lesser sins, and frankly, it would have been irrelevant. But to add insult to injury, in the pain of our conflict, I would give in to pornography. You'll hear me say it a lot. Pain will make you do stupid stuff. Unchecked, unmedicated, and unhealed. An unhealthy heart, a broken heart, a bruised heart, will drive people to do the unthinkable, like the tin man who eventually gave up his heart. It was ugly. It was sin. All of it. I had bought the lie of comparative sin. I would rationalize these things were not as bad as drugs and alcohol and crime and human trafficking and murder and satanic worship, or so I thought. Remember the objective of the war? Satan is raging against God by attacking us. And if you start using comparison to minimize your sin, you've played right into his plan. If you miss heaven by a fraction of an inch or a mile, the devil's won the battle for your soul. This whole thing humbled me. I had been playing fast and loose with my own salvation while taking terrible care of God's daughter. When my eyes were open to this, I responded. Life began to turn around. I was still a work in progress, but it was a significant course correction. Shoot, <laughs> it's still a work in progress, really. 1 Peter 5, 5-11 in the message reads this way. And it really applied to our situation. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. In my single days, I would look critically at how people would treat the ones they love the worst, or at least what I perceived to be the worst. I think it makes a bit more sense now, and not just in the marriage relationship, but in the family relationship, in the church relationship, because we long for intimacy, and in these relationships we're exposed. And it's in this exposure that sin creates the greatest damage. And the devil and all his demons laugh. They celebrate as they steal, kill, and destroy. 
and watch God's kids steal joy, kill relationships, and destroy the beauty of marriage. Ultimately, these passages apply to every Christian, but due to the exposure and vulnerability in marriage, its corrective advice can be a relational saver. Open war is upon us, whether we pick the fight to begin with or not. We fight by being humble, alert, sober-minded, standing firm and casting our cares upon our Father who loves us deeply and will restore us and make us strong and firm and steadfast. This week, take a look at the list in 1 Peter 5, 5-11, and I challenge you to pray as I'm praying as well. What on this list am I struggling with? Or is the devil trying to get me to take action on something on this list? As I wrap up this episode, remember David's prayer in Psalm 139. I want to read it out of the message this time. I think it drives home the point a bit more clearly. Quote, Investigate my life, O God. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done anything wrong. Then guide me on the road to eternal life. End quote. I'm Nate Vinio, and this has been Something to Gnaw. Until next week.